So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yes, uh, David Hampton, my good friend, and I are broadcasting here from sunny Middle Tennessee. It seems that spring may actually be arriving after we have survived the deadly blizzard of 2021. Yeah, the snowpocalypse yeah. or snowmageddon yeah. or all that. Yeah. And you're back in the office, David. And, yes, uh, seeing humans. You know, Seeing humans, seeing clients back together. What else is happening in your life, brother? Oh, man. Just, it's a laugh a minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Uh, I'll tell you what. I am at a, um, a point where I am, I am feeling like um, I, my warranty is running out. I think that on my... <laughs> oh, yeah. Do I know my, that feeling? Yeah, yeah. You know, like I hit... Um, I hit 60 in September and it's like that the, um, the timer went off and everything just yeah. started going kind of haywire. But, uh, the, the kind of short version is, is I've had a history with, um, AFib for, yeah. um, atrial fibrillation and, um, the, uh, the whole thing, uh, is uh, a pain in the ass because you're out of breath, <laughs> you're yeah. you're tired. You climb a flight of stairs and you feel like you've been on a elliptical machine for 20 minutes. You yeah. know, so you don't exercise. I had my whole thing going back in the summer with the trainer. You know, I hired the trainer and sure, everything was sure. supposed to be great. But I realized I was not able to do a whole lot of the stuff he was wanting me to do. And to the point that it was more than just being out of shape. It was like, I physically couldn't breathe. I was really uh, struggling and ended up going back to my doctor. I had had an ablation uh, procedure about five years ago and, um, and realized that um, those aren't forever and that you can actually, Mm -hmm. you know, go back into AFib again. And, and so I went back to the cardiologist and, uh, I wore the heart monitor for two weeks and I did all kinds of things that I was supposed to do. And we toyed with cardio versions, but that wasn't uh, something that was going to be helpful for me because I, it turned out that I was in persistent, uh, constant AFib. The heart monitor showed that I just really didn't really ever go out of it much. Wow! So I've been on blood thinners and expensive medicines. I mean, there was a medication that I hadn't met my deductible because, you know, I, hadn't been sick. And so I hadn't met my deductible. I went and picked up a blood thinner and a, uh, a medication called Maltac that's for, um, your heart, uh, to help, you know, you find your rhythm, stay in rhythm, all that stuff. Yeah. My prescription bill was $1,700 What at the pharmacy. Yes. And I said, well, what about with my insurance? And she said, that is with your insurance. And I said, I said a bunch of things. I'll spare our listeners. But, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this pharmacist was just looking at me like, yeah, I totally feel you right now. Um, The the cussing section is over there if you want to go sit with those people. Um, But um, so anyway, you know, I had a a talk with my doctor and, you know, all this stuff. Well, come to find out the expensive medicine wasn't even really working. So I'm going to have to have a procedure, but the procedure I'm going to have this time is different than the standard ablation procedure Mm -hmm. in the past where they, you know, go up through a a vein in your groin and get into your heart. This one is called a hybrid. And the hybrid is, um, they, they do have to open your chest uh, exterior, uh, incision to access Uh the exterior of the heart, as well as do the, um, 
ablation procedure from oh. inside. And they're going to do what they call a watchman, which is a little uh, a tiny umbrella that they put in an artery so you can go off blood thinner. So it requires three surgeons and an eight hour oh. procedure of under oh, anesthesia. David. And I'll only be in the hospital two days. <laughs> so the good news is I've had my, my COVID vaccine because behavioral health got rolled into, you know, the COVID yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. phase. And so I've had my two shots, thank God. So I won't have to worry about getting COVID really in the hospital. But mm-hmm. um, it's sometime in the next 30 to 60 days, they're, they're coordinating three surgeon schedules right now. And they do this hybrid procedure. But the good news about it is, after you know your your chest heals and your groin heals and you yeah. know you you feel yeah. and, and you'll laugh I think you'll laugh um, the guy the the surgeon I went to consult with who does the exterior part he opens your chest which isn't a complete open heart surgery procedure they just okay. create a conduit in oh, your chest geez. with a few yeah. inches of an incision he said but you'll you'll experience some discomfort that you didn't have the last time he said because we have to shave down part of your stern them, you know, to get this little yeah. uh, device in that we go in through. And I'm so, you know, pass out just as you oh, described yeah, this. It. So funny. Okay, go ahead. And I said, okay, you said I'll experience some discomfort. He said, yeah, you'll be on pain meds for about 10 days. I said, okay. Um, I said, am I going to experience discomfort or am I going to feel like total shit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> His nurse laughed and she said, I think closer to the second one. <laughs> oh. Oh, David. <laughs> so anyway, if you know people who pray, pray. Uh, people yeah. who send me good thoughts, I'll take those. Anybody who does any, you know, burn some sage, do a voodoo ritual. I don't care. Kill a chicken on my behalf, <laughs> but keep me, <laughs> keep me in mind for the next couple of months because somewhere in here, I, and we'll keep you posted. I'll talk a little bit more yeah. about it. Um, yeah. but it's going to be a little bit more of an ordeal than I anticipated. So I was, I went from discouragement to, well, the good news is this has the best opportunity for the best long-term outcomes of acute, you know, AFib. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to be fine. Um, but I am going to, um, have to start from scratch on the fitness and all this other stuff and change some lifestyle stuff. It's going to be a, yeah. It's going to be an interruption. But the good news is uh, the guy on our episode today uh, is a kind of a fitness guru. Uh, he's a doctor of physical therapy, um, Dr. Steve Pulley, uh, who yeah. does not have AFib, <laughs> yeah. um, has done some incredible things uh, in his recovery and uh, to bring attention to recovery. So uh, I think people are going to want to hear his, uh, his kind of intriguing approach. What a great conversation it is. Uh, Stay with us. You're going to want to hear this. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, David, one thing that I just marvel at about you is uh, the, the people you meet. (laughs) <laughs> it's are, are the people that find I, me or, or something like yeah, that <laughs> you have a strong gravitational field i think well i don't uh, know it's yeah it's hard to say yeah 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 and uh and every now and again you bring one of those new friends onto the show and that's what we've got this week uh, tell us about our, our guest will you and uh how you connected yeah um this is dr steve pulley and steve is a uh, he's coming to us from Nashville, but by way of New York and Los Angeles. <laughs> so uh, he's okay, tri-coastal then. That's right. He is yeah, uh, okay. new to the area, and uh, but not new to recovery. Uh, he's got a great recovery story. He's a doctor of physical therapy uh, by trade, but he's also uh, a, a recovery coach and uh, wellness coach, and he has a um, a, a really interesting practice. And uh, I want him to talk about that, but he's also had some really interesting adventures in his recovery and sobriety. So, uh, Steve, welcome to the podcast. First of all, thank you for making time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we spent about um, I don't know, a little over an hour. Was it a couple of weeks ago, Steve? 
mm-hmm. just kind of connecting uh, in my office and uh, and uh, you had uh, come across my name from some people and we talked about Nashville and talked about uh, the recovery community here, but also uh, got into some of the things that Steve had done. And um, I thought he'd make a great, I know he will make a great guest, but he's got some interesting adventures. So um, Steve, how in the world did you end up in um, recovery work, first of all? Yeah, David, I, um, again, appreciate you guys both having me on. And I guess backing up, um, I entered recovery, um, I guess you could say successfully for the first time in 2008. And I was 20 years old. And at that point, I'd been to close to double-digit treatment centers, um, a few inpatients, tried outpatient, had tried college a number of times to integrate back in, leaving treatment only to withdraw, usually with a medical withdrawal, and 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 buy myself back in more consequences or or back into treatment. And really, um, it took, I guess, a shift for me to understand that I needed to dedicate myself long-term and find a sober living that really, um, I don't know, like where I got sober, it it wasn't necessarily the fanciest place and didn't have all the amenities, but there was structure and there's discipline. And I was with a community where, you know, I was supported and coming in at 20, you know, like in some ways like brings different challenges in terms of what next. And so for me, um, during that period, I went, got a humbling job. And by humbling job, I mean McDonald's. <laughs> and uh-huh. I, wow. You know, I had a um, two meeting a day schedule. I was doing AA um, and I was living in South Georgia. I was riding my bike and I was wearing a helmet and I was going back and forth to this job and, and you know, slowly starting to integrate into the process of actually doing step work and, and realizing, okay, like there's something unmanageable about this situation. I keep ending up in places like this. Why don't I mm-hmm. give everything I have to this process and, and see what happens? What truly at that point, what did I have to lose? Cause I really mm. recognized that my life had become unmanageable and that I was powerless over um, what I was doing at the time. And for me, that had led me to, um, you know, heroin and cocaine and, um, truly like I knew that, uh, it, that the gig was up, you know, and that it was either a get sober now this way, realizing my family was on their last kind of, um, I don't know, last string in terms of providing me an opportunity with treatment. And, and, you know, I took it really serious. And as a result, like it, that, that work, you know, and that time I spent about, about a year, a little bit more than um, in a sober living, um, pay dividends. And what ended up happening was I stayed in this small, uh, town in Georgia, Statesboro. I mean, it's claim to fame is Statesboro blues, which the Allman brothers did a song about. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, uh, there's a few times where I would be humming, <laughs> humming that song, like riding my bike, going back and forth, kind of feeling sorry for myself, but really just like understanding that, um, you know, as I think probably, a lot of people um, start to do the work and, and start to feel a shift and start to realize, okay, like this is an opportunity. This is a good situation that I'm in. I'm in a supportive community. Um, why don't I try going back to school for the fifth time? And, uh, you know, I, I applied and Georgia Southern had just started what's called a college recovery program. And so essentially that's an institutionally sanctioned, director-led, peer-to-peer focused supportive group on a college campus. And um, there's about 50 of us between 18 and 25 that participate in that program. And I was kind of involved in the the first class, you would say. And so, um, yeah, it just made a lot of sense for me to just kind of like stay right where my feet were and to get grounded and realize that the community had really uh, provided me a lot of support and um, decided that I'm going to try school again, even though there was a lot of fear behind that. And I had not been successful in the past and reintegrating in and not just socially, but you know, all the other things that comes up with college. I just wouldn't say like college is um, probably um, it's a non-conducive environment for sobriety. That's like a nice way yes. of saying, you're right. right. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of people there that are, you know, there for a lot of different reasons. And 
I was really motivated to uh, to to make this this time successful, and, and I had support. And as a result, I got moved through that program. Um, and yeah, you know, we had weekly meetings. We did trips. We had an AA meeting on Friday that was open to the community, so other people could come on campus. Uh, it eventually evolved into a, a full space with computers and you know, just really a safe place to go on the campus. And that was amazing resource to have looking back. I didn't even realize how nice it was at the time. You know, I think Mm. there's certain times certainly where I took it for granted because what I ended up doing was, um, you know, applying to grad schools and and I had studied exercise physiology. And at this time, um, yeah, I gotten really into fitness, exercise and fitness, um, right when I got out of treatment, uh, funny enough, like I did not do any, uh, any physical fitness while in treatment that was actually not allowed at this uh, particular time at this particular place, given, mm. you know, oh, that wow. it, it could be a distraction or, or you could get obsessive over it or sort of replace one thing for the other, which, um, you know, I, I have some thoughts about looking back, but at the time, like it made sense because there was like another sober living down the way where some guys have gotten busted, like, you know, doing steroids and lifting water bags and, you know, like just like taking things mm-hmm. to extreme, like we tend to do. And so, um, yeah, for this period, I was uh, getting sober. I was not really introduced to physical fitness besides the riding my bike back and forth to work into, um, into 12 step meetings. So, you know, what's funny about that, I guess, is that I didn't really like doing that. And I, I did get a car and I did get some privileges. Um, but when I got out of treatment, I, I did get into cycling and I got into running and ended up, um, yeah, like uh, qualifying for the Boston Marathon and you really got into cycling in a way where I was, um, you know, riding, you know, 100 miles a week and um, really enjoying it. And I think uh, that period, too, I quit smoking, which was just a mm-hmm. quick benefit to get from, um, you know, just sort of replacing what am I going to do now? Because I think uh, when I was getting sober at that time, so many people were smoking cigarettes and, and I was one of them mm-hmm. probably for the first mm-hmm. two years, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, um, that's sort of what led my way to fitness, led my way to understanding how that could be a useful tool in my recovery and also realizing what community support looked like beyond 12 step meetings and what having support on a college campus could do. If that makes sense. Um, and so all of those things um, were identified in my first three, four years of recovery and, and things that I really gravitated mm-hmm. towards and recognized were, were really helping me. Um, yeah. Well, go ahead, Nate. Yeah. So I, I'm fascinated by your description of this uh, program at Georgia Southern. Do you know whether any other institutions have uh, copied their template? Uh, are there similar programs elsewhere in the country? Yeah. So you kind of moving forward. So it's, um, you know, realizing that was about 12 years ago uh, when I was at that program and that was the first one in Georgia. Now there's about 10 in Georgia and there's 200 nationwide and Vanderbilt actually has a wow. program for college support here in Nashville. So, you know, I was not exactly on the, on the very front end, Texas Tech and Rutgers have had these programs for 20 or 30 years. Um, Mm -hmm. but that being said, I was really grateful to sort of come in and be in a town, um, that offered that support and it made a lot of sense. And it's really why I chose to stay in South Georgia and and it was really a no brainer at the time. And so I guess what happened was a lot of these programs are, um, you know, they're not self-supporting by the university at first and require some philanthropic support or, um, outside donations and, I was really fortunate. This program was uh, supported through Willing Way, which is a uh, inpatient treatment center that was in town. And they, they had a foundation that heavily supported it to get traction. And um, But we would do a fundraiser every year and we would do this haunted house. And it was actually really well done. Like it was um, a lot of time and effort went into that. And the students stepped up and put on this thing where the entire community would come through and ended up being a significant fundraiser. And it was eliminated one year through an incident that had had happened. And um, I was graduating, applying to grad schools, thinking, okay, you know, I I thought maybe I'll do 
my master's or get a PhD in exercise physiology and realized that that wasn't really for me, like the lab work. While, while I liked some of aspects, I didn't really like being isolated and interpreting data and doing all that. And so I decided I'd, I'd apply to physical therapy school only to realize, okay, here I am, an applicant with five undergrad <laughs> transcripts. Four of those undergrad yeah. transcripts have a uh, uh, are carrying nine credits <laughs> and a 2.0 GPA. Yeah. And then I have, you know, another, you know, whatever it was at the time, 130, 140 credits with a uh, close to a 3.8 GPA. And well, what's the story there, right? Like, you know, I think you could explain one or two uh, schools or whatever, but to chalk up five and like these kind of gaps and periods to a competitive graduate program was it was difficult and it really faced me with this position where I was, you know, just leaning into, I'm going to be transparent about what happened and talked about it in some essays and had to check a few boxes in terms of other consequences I'd faced. And really I didn't have, I felt at the time any other choice than being transparent about it. And I was really lucky to get, I think it ended up being uh, 45 letters of recommendation and support that I could attach which um, wow. when yeah. I did get wow. finally. Uh, well, ex- uh, fast forwarding a little bit, Steve, um, you took an interesting trip, um, like a bike trip. Um, and um, where did you get the idea to do that? And what, um, what prompted your, what prompted your trip? Hello. Did we just lose him? We lost him. He's offline. There you are. There we go. Hey, I lost you guys. Hey, that's okay. We'll edit it out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so uh, we'll start back here. Um, you had an interesting idea for a bike trip that you took. Um, and I want to know what prompted the uh, the idea um, and, and where you got the uh, – well, just just tell us about the, the purpose of the trip and where you got the idea and what you were trying to accomplish, because you got a lot of attention for it. Yeah. So, you know, what ended up happening was I, I applied to as many graduate programs as I could and, and was really fortunate to get in to, uh, to one that I chose as my number one, which was back where I was from uh, at the Medical University, uh, South Carolina in Charleston. And so I had a semester off in between, basically. I graduated in in, uh, in winter, and this is around uh, 2013. And I wanted to figure out a way to get back to the program that uh, had supported me during my college years, the college recovery program at, at Georgia Southern. And so I was thinking, okay, how could I do something that could raise some money, raise some awareness for the effectiveness of these programs? And also be kind of fun, like to do in between um, while I have this semester off. And I hadn't really uh, saved a whole lot of money up to like go travel Europe and like go off on this lavish trip. And I had actually read a book recently about this couple in the 70s that circumvented the world on bicycle. And I was like, well, that would be amazing. But let's let's get realistic. <laughs> it took them two years to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. what, what, what can I do here and how can I connect all these pieces? And so. Um, I looked into this trip of uh, riding my bicycle from California, from the Pacific coast in San Diego, back through Charleston and thought, okay, this I can do. And I know that you can do it uh, depending on how fast you're pedaling, you know, between a month, yeah. a month and a half. Um, yeah. And then really to add to that, I said, all right, well, you know, I can just do the trip. Or I can try to make some stops along the way and, and go visit some other college recovery programs, some treatment centers, and connect with people that way and do my best to document and, and sort of have an, you know, an all-mind fundraiser. And, and I was able to pull that off fairly quickly, and, and it was, uh, I got some support, again, from people that were in my community where I'd gone to my sober living and got a few sponsorships to cover the costs and people that believed in me that were like, okay, yeah, I think you could physically pull this off. <laughs> we know you well enough. And they'd see me around yeah. town, always running and riding my bike and all this stuff. So um, I was really, you know, fortunate to get that support. And, and that's what I did. And, and I started on that was my sixth uh, anniversary sober date. So it was uh, on March 23rd, uh, 2014. And I started from there, I like picked my 
anniversary trip up um, in San Diego and from Ocean Beach there, I started out and had this whole trip sort of mapped out for 57 days where I stopped. And, you know, some days I would ride close to 100 miles and other days I would, you know, just kind of coast on the wind. And um, but I pretty much had some hard deadlines to make in terms of certain speaking engagements. So if I had to make up time on one day, I had to make sure the next day you know, that, that uh, it, it all kind of evened out where I could get to, um, to, get, to get to my certain speaking destinations and stops where really I just told a piece of my story similar to a 12 step mm-hmm. format. And then I would stay after mm-hmm. and connect with people and usually would wheel my bicycle in there and ride right up. There'd be like a, like a day where I rode like close to a hundred miles into Phoenix rode right up into the facility. And it was like kind of pushing for time a little bit within like, I got there maybe within 20 minutes, maybe a few minutes late um, after riding literally for nine or 10 hours that day, got up to the podium, oh, told my story in front of, you know, maybe a hundred people and then stayed after and had dinner and talked for two or three hours. And so there were some really draining days that were just like physically and even emotionally on some aspect where I was just like kind of. <laughs> definitely burning at both ends to uh to kind of make these these stops that were really important and that's what to honestly gave a lot of meaning and purpose behind the trip is connecting with people uh along yeah. the way and, you're sharing and your story all the way yeah all the way across the country basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um well what were some of the standout experiences you had um going and how long did it take you yeah it ended up taking me 57 days and you know, I, what I ended up doing is when I got to Austin and I got to Houston, those are roughly the halfway points. Uh, I, I took almost a week off in Austin. Uh, my family came out, which was really nice of them and got some time to see them. And, um, and then in Houston, that sort of got really kind of added on last minute where I connected with a guy who ran the college recovery program at, at university of Houston. And he ended up lining me up. I think like that was the, the probably the most standout experience where I just added this on sort of last minute, rode through Houston, which is a huge metropolis to navigate on bicycle. There's not exactly bike paths all along the way. And um, I had asked him, he, he had set up uh, an opportunity for me to speak to his students, which was great because I had just come from a college recovery program and, and connecting with them was awesome. And I said, you know, maybe you could line me up another place in town if you had an idea I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And then he, the next day he, he lined up seven places for us to go visit and talk to. So I spent the, the entire <laughs> next day, uh, you know, really telling the, the same story over and over again, which was, which was my story. And, uh, you know, it, connecting with him was amazing. He, he had an awesome story of, of redemption really where he had gotten, um, sober and, and gotten to go back to school and then applied for this position and against a lot of odds, gotten it and really connected well with the students and, and him and I are still really good friends to this day. And again, he just had picked up my story along the way, invited me into his home. I stayed with him for three days in Houston. Um, amazing. So like I had so many opportunities like that. I actually use this website called warmshowers.org, which, which sounds a little creepy and, and at times felt that way but essentially (laughs) um, coming across the southwest particular there were stretches and and the path was essentially along i-10 and uh, certain and certain parts you could ride on the interstate on your bicycle and and after um, new mexico you, you really couldn't but so there's these parallel back roads and families and people that were just used to hosting people surprisingly like thousands of people do this i would see people along the way almost every day pedaling and and doing the trip um a lot of europeans or retirees or i don't know just a a pretty pretty big spectrum and so um yeah i stopped at several people's houses on the way and i guess what was if i had to like kind of narrow down a few of the stories but one particularly that was the first stop that i had coming out from San Diego and I'd gotten onto warm showers and lined up a family and, and I ended up staying with a guy who was a pastor who had experience in recovery, uh, with crystal meth and like just sort of opened up to me and shared his experience, uh, with that. And I had stayed with him and his family and seen this whole life that he had put together. And he was a really active guy. He was super into scuba diving and, uh, spearfishing. And we just, we just really, 
gelled and connected. And that was night one where I was like, all right, like this was meant to be because there was a lot of fear and nerves behind like, could, could I do this? And I'd really only been cycling for a year. So to put together a 3000 mile trip, um, you know, there was certainly some doubts, but when I met uh, him and, and stay with him and his family, that was a, a great way to start, start the trip off and, and mostly had positive experiences along the way where people just offered a free, um, you know, kind of like a free B and B like to, uh, cyclists traveling through. Cause it's, yeah. it seems so many people do this, this trip before. And, and so, yeah, it, there was a lot of, uh, awesome experiences from that. And I don't know, I could probably come up with a few more stories. I don't know how many you would want. <laughs> well so uh you make it to charleston uh you're accepted into your number one uh choice for a graduate school uh yeah so was uh, any any surprises in the uh graduate program did you find you had to push yourself press yourself in ways you hadn't expected what were the payoffs yeah well i'd say i'd say what (laughs) The way that I lined this up, I gave myself two days rest in between starting graduate school. And when I pedaled in, I had done an interview and set up an event where we partnered with the Medical University of South Carolina. And 100 people rode in with me to dip my tire into the Atlantic Ocean. So I I dipped my tire in the Pacific starting, dipped it in the Atlantic when I had arrived to Charleston. And we had rented out of space, got music, band, uh, silent auction, and, and did some fundraising for... MUSC, Medical University of South Carolina, for their uh, drug and alcohol program research. And so that was um, quite an entrance to coming back to my hometown, really, where I left and been gone for five or six <laughs> years. And, um, you know, starting the program uh, almost the next day, like going get my books and then going right into that program. It, it, there was certainly some adjustments and, and feeling a little bit overwhelmed in terms of, uh, all the outreach and support that I got and some of the publications and even the school I attended really wanted to do a story and put, put, put out there what I had done since I'd um, done some fundraising with them. But, you know, um, I got humbled in terms of how difficult just like the course load was and what it was like to be Mm -hmm. pretty exposed with my story. Um, and realizing how different my classmates were than me, like on the surface level and on probably a deeper level too, in terms of some of my experiences and realizing, okay, I got sober in a really safe community where I was around probably a hundred something odd young people in recovery and, and growing up in that. And then fast forward to the medical university of South Carolina. My only experience with them was in their inpatient psychiatric drug and alcohol unit uh, for a couple of overdoses. <laughs> so like that was, that was how they yeah. knew me. That was how I knew MUSC. Uh, I'd been in the ER twice and, and, st- and done a, a long stay kind of waiting for a treatment bed. Um, and so what was cool about that was that, um, the story got picked up. It, it got kind of pinged around where this federal, uh, magistrate judge came to me and said, Hey, I want you to come tell your story in five minutes, which again is, that's a challenging time window to my drug and alcohol court, uh, program participants. And she had started this program called the bridge program on a federal level. And she had also just been named alumni of the year at the college of Charleston, which is a, uh, the, the largest liberal arts, uh, school that was maybe a mile down the road from where I was doing grad school. And she said, we were going to, we should start one of these programs here in, in Charleston. And, Fast forwarding through that process, which was two years, we ended up doing that. And so the recognition that the bike ride brought, that was great. And and there was funds raised to support my alma mater program, but actually having that passed along and and a program that got started and accepted in my hometown, it was an amazing experience. And really, um, Mm -hmm. I can attribute like that to being the best part of my uh, return to coming home during that period. And and, and moving through the grad school experience was, yeah, it was challenging to have had the support and then had not had the support, if that makes sense. And, and I was able to help start a 12-step mm-hmm. meeting on the campus that people would go to. And, and there was some shame and stigma when it comes to, especially, um, you know, some of the people that would pop in or were working at the hospital or worked in healthcare. Like we had 
a special yeah. space dedicated for us that that uh, lended itself to a little bit more privacy than some of the other uh, rooms and understanding that some people really like want to be protective when it comes to that, when it comes to, you know, protecting their sure. anonymity and, and, um, but we got a, a meeting started on the campus, which was amazing. And I was glad to be a part of that. And simultaneously was working with, uh, um, college of student affairs at college of Charleston, which was a very long bureaucratic process and helped them fundraise, um, almost half a million dollars to start the program which they do and they did and <laughs> it's, it's in place today. So. That's fantastic. Well, so, so you, um, you leave college, you're um, a doctor of physical therapy, um, but you get into uh, recovery and fitness uh, work that kind of uh, commingles together. How, um, how did that happen? And, um, and, and you found yourself in New York and Los Angeles and you're, and you're working with clients. Tell us a little bit about how you incorporate your physical therapy world, your recovery experience with uh, coaching and, and where, where you are now. Yeah. So this, this whole experience, I guess, had um, caught attention of a, distant family member uh, of mine up in New York City and they were having some issues um, with their teenage son and so I ended up going up there and visiting and and mentoring and, and sharing my experience some and and formed a connection with New York City that way and I graduated and this is um, in 2017 I, I accepted a physical therapy job and and more of a rural South Carolina setting, which, you know, I was grateful for the job offer, but wasn't quite sure about. And I had this moment where I got to reflect and, and I was out, I think at that time in Utah, um, sort of shortly after graduating, thinking like, okay, like, is this what, what, is this what I want to do? And, and how, you know, how, how can I merge, like you were saying, like my background and help people in recovery and have the PT aspect and what's that going to look like? And do I want to do that, you know, in my hometown or do I want to spread my wings a bit? And I got a chance to go to New York city and I did this like just random LinkedIn message to a PT clinic that was really um, fascinating and they were acclaimed and they were growing and they ended up hiring me on the spot and they knew a little bit about my story. And I ended up meeting the CEO who I'd, sent a direct message on, on LinkedIn and um, I got this job offer there at the, and they were starting a clinic at the Plaza Hotel and it was right down the street from a family member of mine that had, like I said, had been helpful to her and her son. And I was like, this is, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to take this job. And, and I took that position in New York and very shortly after through the family member, I met with some consultants and, and realized that, you know, I could do uh, some recovery coaching um, kind of as a side job, realizing that I'd moved to New York very spontaneously uh, and, and very quickly learned how expensive it is to live there and, and, and that I would need some side income. And mm. I took a job um, really helping somebody that was in a sober living that needed extra support, that had a co-occurring mental health issue, that was getting managed on medication, that had some, it was lethargic and, and really needed some help when it came to just doing activities of daily living, which I, you know, familiar with and helping people more in an inpatient setting with PT. But beyond that, like integrating in uh, socially into, into recovery and to also build out a physical fitness plan to, um, you know, really keep him, I guess, on a holistic front, like moving forward in the process of recovery where some challenges had come up in terms of, you know, some of his situation. And so I would meet with him on the weekends and do my standard PT job Monday through Friday. And I worked like that for, I don't know, probably the, the next five, six months. And I realized, okay, you know, what, what was gratifying or kind of filling me up more? What, what was it helping people with their knees and elbows get back to playing tennis and golf, or was it really helping people um, build some fundamental skills that could change their life? And I could use my direct experience to have an impact on them. And at that point I knew and just walked away really completely from the standard outpatient PT world and, 
and, and got into doing what I'm doing now, which is, which I'm, you know, calling recovery and wellness coaching, which is integrating in physical fitness plans with people and, and also offering them accountability and goals around, uh, their recovery. So. Yeah. Doesn't it feel good when, uh, you know, our own hard won wisdom, I don't know about you, but wisdom comes very slowly to me for a smart guy. I can be awfully stupid. Uh, and meanwhile, I can inflict an awful lot of pain on myself and other people, which I, you know, and so I carry this, uh, residue of regret for all the damage I've done. But then, uh, when you have the opportunity to operate with that hard won wisdom and convey it to somebody else and help them make a positive change in a way that maybe will reduce uh, the pain that they experience and cause. And you've got to get that redemption. It's like, it's not just my healing, but uh, I, I get this feeling I'm some kind of a cosmic instrument. It gives me meaning. Is that, does that resonate with you? No, absolutely. I mean, that that to me was where it was a no-brainer where I realized, okay, I can help people with what I'm passionate about, share my experience and see profound changes. I mean, that particular individual went on to um, launch this luxury handbag brand and do really big, amazing things. And there's been a couple of stories where, you know, I was integrated in. Um, and seeing nice. a huge difference. Uh, and that, it, to me, like that's, that's huge. And, and so I've been really fortunate in that way to, you know, pursue what I'm passionate about. I still really stay involved with my own physical fitness uh, routine. There's been clients where recently I had one where I would go out and, and, and even in the first case I shared, I'd work out with my clients, which sort of separates me from a personal trainer, meaning I'm out there, like I'm running, mm -hmm. I'm doing all the exercises, really doing everything I can to, to motivate and get somebody involved and, and get somebody kind of over that initial hurdle, um, coming from a sedentary lifestyle, if you will, unhealthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. certainly into, uh, you know, into some of these guys that I've worked with on, on certain aspects levels are more fit than I am today, which is amazing to see. Um, you know, and it's amazing to see that progress and then the confidence and really like where, where some people I've worked with, where they've gone as a result of me being a part of that story and them really doing the work, you know, not me taking any credit because certainly, you know, um, and there's certainly been awesome experiences that have resulted. So yeah, it, it brought me out, uh, to LA and in New York and particularly work with clients that are either, you know, from a ultra high net worth family or they are public persona or they have something else about them that, um, on the outside seems like, okay, these are advantages and these are, it's hard to maybe have that sympathy, but I've really have not, not built sympathy, but empathy for people that have some, you know, external resources that have caused them as a result to be treated differently or to not have really developed the internal um, or the skills of, of daily living to support themselves because mm -hmm. they've been given a lot of things and as a result don't have those tools. And so it was so funny. I, I remember a client I work with had never ridden the subway, lived in New York for years and you know, I taught him how to ride the subway and what that looks like to buy a ticket. And this is a, this is a guy from South Carolina, right? Teaching, you know, somebody else that had spent years in New York on, on how, what the subway system looked like and, and how to get around. So, you know. Wow. wow how cool. Well, how cool. Steve, so you're, you're kind of settled in Nashville here for the time being, it sounds like you and I, when you and I talked last, that that seemed to be kind of where your leaning was. How can people get in touch with you before we wrap up here um, and access what you offer to people? Because you do, uh, you, you are accessible for uh, sober companions, interventions. Um, you have a lot of things that uh, would would be something that I think people might want to know about. So how can we get in touch with you and find out more? Yeah. Um, I, my, my website's pretty easy. It's recoveryandwellnesscoach.com. And I have an Instagram that I recently started and it's at uh, Dr. Coach Steve. 
And so those are probably the two, two best ways to, to get in touch with me. And, um, yeah, it's been interesting, Dave. I really appreciate you, uh, and just our conversation that we had realizing I'm finding for my own self, like I'm integrating into a community mid pandemic and I've been so lucky to, Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of traveling and and there's been clients that I've traveled with and lived in and and moved around city to city and been so fortunate to build a a, a national and international uh, network and done some work in London and, you know, had amazing relationships develop in all of these cities because uh, I'm going to 12 step recovery meetings and meeting people there and realizing that's, not been the case. Um, and since I've been in Nashville, it's, it's taken a lot more effort on my part to connect with people or friends of friends. And so I think, um, you know, for me, uh, I'm just as interested in integrating into Nashville and, and working with people on a professional and on a personal level too, and, and being involved. And I really, you know, appreciate the opportunity to, to meet you guys, even if we're doing this podcast virtually um you know, yeah so. <laughs> yeah maybe someday we can have you back when we're all in the studio again around mics <laughs> <Yeah>. together <laughs> like the good old yeah. days yeah. So. <laughs> okay. well steve it's been great to meet you uh thanks for taking the time to talk with us uh you've landed in a great town in nashville i'm sure you know that already mm-hmm. uh terrific people here good quality of recovery and uh, I'm thrilled that you're in town. I can't, I can't wait to spend a little time with you myself. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Nate, um, that was an interesting conversation with Dr. Steve Pulley. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's doing some interesting stuff. And I will tell you this, you know, now that Zencaster, the platform that we use to record these podcasts, has given us video access to our guests, even though we don't have a video cast, we can actually see our guests. Right. We've been, now, I haven't seen a, most of our previous guests, the ones that we've had to do this remotely. Right. But it's hard for me to imagine that we've had a better looking guest. Than <laughs> that is true. You know, Steve is a guy that uh, if you follow his Instagram, you're going to think that central casting uh, put him uh, <laughs> put him out here for, uh, you know, the poster child for all things recovery. I, when I went to his website, I thought that um, they had hired models, you know, to do his uh, his, you know, his, the, the, the different, uh, yeah. uh, contexts in which they photographed him and come find out that's actually Steve. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And that's, you know, I, to me, that's a reminder that, you know, appearances do not always, uh, you know, accurately communicate what's going on inside a person's life. That is true. That is yeah. true. Yeah. And, you know, you would tend to, you know, I would tend to look at a guy like Steve with all that, just that classic, handsome, good looks and say, there's a guy who's probably just skated through life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, certainly he hasn't had to deal with and would not be subject to the kind of things that I have had to fight with, with my ordinary or maybe perhaps not quite ordinary, good enough to be ordinary looks. Right. <laughs> uh, but nobody's immune. Nobody's immune. Everybody has a struggle. Everybody does. And and everybody has an opportunity for recovery. And I, I, it was just so cool. Uh, I was especially taken, as I said during the conversation, especially taken by his description of the college recovery groups. Mm -hmm. I do know that, you know, college age kids, I mean, that is just a time of life when uh, addiction is knocking at all the doors and windows and every opportunity is available. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, to see Steve's recognition of the debt that he owes to that supportive community and his desire to give back, the length to which he would go to give back and support that community, I found truly inspiring. Yeah. And it makes me want to find out more about these 200 or so college recovery programs around the country. Yeah, we've got a um, a, a link uh, to um, the guy that is partnering with him in some of that work, mm-hmm. and I uh, believe we're going to have 
that individual on soon to talk more about what that will really look like in more in more detail. So fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, another great conversation. Before we go, Dave, uh, David, please do remind our listeners about our sponsor. Absolutely. We are so happy to have BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, generously sponsoring the podcast. This is an online therapy resource. It is not a, uh, a crisis hotline. It is not an emergency hotline, but it is a therapy resource that you can access and get a licensed therapist uh, on a regular basis, as regularly as you would like to see. Um, And you can go there. And if you will uh, log in with uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, you'll not only receive a discount, but we'll also get to know that uh, the resources we are offering you are helpful and things that you can take advantage of and are taking advantage of. And um, you will be able to uh, see this uh, therapist as your own, or you uh, may find if it's not a great fit, you can you can transfer to another therapist that might uh, suit your purposes a little bit better. But anxiety, depression, relationships, all those things that we all struggle with that we want to uh, become unstuck, you can join about 500,000 other subscribers at betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. All right. And, and uh, as an added reminder, we love your feedback, love your encouragement, love your suggestions. We even love your criticism on the rare occasion when uh, we receive it. We're open to everything. Uh, this is your show as well as ours. If you have a suggestion for the show, please drop us a note at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, that's the end of this hour, this episode. Been great to see you and talk with you again, David. Until well, next time. Yeah. Yeah. Until next time, then. I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford. 